0: That's your decision now, don't I? This is the Black Rifle Coffee
1: Podcast.
2: Joining the Black Rifle Coffee Club is like setting your coffee delivery to autopilot. As a club member, you get your favorite premium BRCC roast delivered fresh to your door with no shipping fees. Just pick your coffee, select the amount, then set the delivery schedule and you're done easy as that join the coffee club today to save big on your favorite roasts
0: all right welcome to the black rifle coffee podcast with myself kevin reeves baker levitt and jeremiah wilbur hi jeremiah how how's you? it going how's how it going you, man? really good um i like to start the show with how do you take your coffee black always yep summer
1: winter doesn't matter black Yep. hot and black
0: what, what would it take for me to get you to drink one of those, like the foofiest shit that we have up front right
3: now? Oh, With dude, all the whipped That's blue and stuff.
1: Yep. There's no way, dude. No. There's no way. No, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a, yeah. I'm not a milk guy either. I'm lactose intolerant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know.
0: I was talking about this the other day. Actually, yesterday. Uh, I got the kids some Oreos. And when I was a kid, I was always like the funny kid with gas at inappropriate times, because I thought it was hilarious. I'd be walking in the grocery store at the <laughs> and I'd wait until we pass. Like, Farts are funny. Always. And I would just, just rip it. And my mom would be like, really, <laughs> <laughs> I actually think I was like very lactose. Oh, probably,
1: probably.
3: My, my mother always said that my brother as a child could fart at will. Yeah. And we were driving down Eisenhower drive and my mother's Cutlass Supreme bench seats. This was God, God. 35 years ago, and Mitchell, my brother, was in the seat behind my mother and was trying to, like, basically repositioning himself to appear that he was, like, shifting the seats, but he put his little ass right behind my mother's head and ripped a fart, and my mother, while driving, turned around and dotted my 10-year-old brother (laughs) in his lips, not in the cheek, not slapped him, popped him square in his mouth. I like Swole it. his lips yeah. up. Yep. I, I like know. it. I got, I got smacked a lot as a kid. So
0: yeah, I, yeah, me uh, too. I, every, every, <laughs> <laughs> I mean <it> like, <laughs> I mean this.
3: That saying every day of the week and twice on Sunday, that was my ass-whipping schedule. And the yeah. reason it was twice on Sunday is because I'd be I get beat before church and after church. Okay. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, it was always <laughs> justified, though. They're like, yeah. don't do this. I'd do it. I'd get smacked. And that's just the way that went. I, but I remember the straw that broke the camel's back is when I was, I was a grown man. I was like 18. And mom went to smack me, and I blocked it. And I was like, not today. She tried to kick me.
3: <laughs> I, could, I think there was one time in my entire life when I got my ass beat. That I didn't deserve it. Oh, I deserved it every time. Yeah, I, I think I'm just saying one because nothing's 100. percent, You know, but yeah, I, I deserved all the. I had shit four
1: brothers and sisters. My mom would just whoop us all. Yeah, just, she'd just be like, Yeah, it was just if you thought about doing something today, like whatever. And or, if, it, if, just, if didn't doing, it, just doing today. it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and if you didn't do anything, it was for the times that you got away with shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, dude. Yeah. I can yeah. remember that when I was a kid. Like, what did I get whooped? Like, <laughs> I'm just yeah.
0: So, today we're here to talk about the War Party movement. Yes, sir. But I would like to learn about your history. All right. Where'd you grow up?
1: So, um, I grew up in the uh, first part of my life in Montana, mostly in Ennis. Um, my dad kind of bounced around. He was a cowhand, um, just trying to make it, and then uh, went to college. So, he kind of worked his way through school, well, cowboying, you know, to work his way through school to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Why he did that, we moved from uh, Ennis, Montana, up to to Haver, and then we kind of back and forth on the uh, on the Indian Reservation while my dad was in school, and then uh, he became a nurse, and then I want to say I was about, uh, I was like 13 or 14, I moved to Las Vegas for junior high and high school. And my dad became a flight nurse, and he, he ran, um, he was the program director for Mercy Air uh, for about. Twenty-five years.
0: That flight nursing, that's flight nursing—that's no joke. Yeah, that's so, a skilled human.
3: Especially back in the day, it
1: was yep. pretty pretty new then, wasn't it? Uh, I wouldn't say it was it was new. But it's um, not as advanced as, as it is. No, today. De- definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, my dad was definitely did a lot of like groundbreaking stuff. You know, back in um, this would have been in the uh, late '80s, early '90s. I want—I think he was like 90 or 91. I think he became a flight nurse. Um, so I went to went to high school in Vegas. Um, Super cool because I had that like upbringing of Montana. You know, my dad was just like I see a ranch hand. So all we did was hunt, fish, everything outdoors. Mom was the same way, very, um, very, very outdoor oriented family. The, mom's the
0: tide of the reservation.
1: Yes. My mother, my, So my mother is um Muscular Apache by blood. Mm-hmm. However, um, a lot of people don't know about the boarding school systems with, so the Native American boarding schools were ran by, most of them were run by the Catholic Church. Um, Basically what it was was like, it's the true meaning of cancel culture. It's, they would just take Native kids away from their family and put them in these schools schools mm-hmm. and they basically whitewashed them to you know cut their hair they couldn't speak their language they wanted to educate the Indian out of and then bring out the man and there's some there's some quotes and some sayings by some pretty pretty nasty folks that put it together um, so my family's a uh, like a byproduct of that so my mother grew up my in the 1930s um, my her both of her uh, parents went to um, Native American boarding schools, and they went to Spanish boarding schools. They were Apache down down south. So my grandmother went to a school up in Durango, Colorado. Um, and they basically were raised like they were Mexican. Um, a lot of and the- that's
3: the Mascalero
1: Masca, yeah. That of my blood, yes. Okay. Um, now the reason for that was because you know if you're brown, you can kind of inculcate. So they did send some of the a lot of the natives on the south uh, southwest to some of these boarding schools. That I ran by the um, Spanish Catholics, um, so it was very like uh, a Mexican style of upbringing. However, you know, food and some traditions, we you know we eat fry bread and we eat a lot of things that are that are native. Um, and then when my mom moved to Montana, she was 19. She moved to Montana. She was adopted into the Cinnaboyan tribe. Um, so as when I grew up, and this is before I was even born. So when I grew up, all the traditions I learned were a um Say that one
3: more time.
1: A Cinnaboyne. A Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, so that's what I learned, you know, as far as growing up. Um, it was more recently that I've kind of connected with um, who my grandfather's side of the family is and who they are, and ca- trying to kind of find out more about um, being Apache and and Apache traditions and customs. Um, like I said, however, you know, I grew up. Um, if my mom was to say what she was, she wouldn't go into that, you know, she's Apache by blood or anything like that. She would just say she was a Cinnabon. Um, but I do clarify that now, just to kind of like one to kind of shed light to people about, you know, the boarding school system was a real thing. They didn't stop until like 1967. Um, a lot of families were affected by it. There's a a, a big reason, like as we go into some of this conversation with the war party movement. Um you know, how it's affected certain native families mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, just how they grew up and a lot of people trying to chase this identity and, and kind of trying to figure it out. Um, but one of the things I tell everyone, though, is like the government did this. This is a government run program. So, you know, whether whatever you want to say about the government, it's like, well, we've been doing this to our own people for you know, and it, it just doesn't just mean natives. Like you look at World War II, right? They did that to the Japanese. They did. There's been a lot of crazy things the government's done to us. And I think that, um, you know, I read a quote the other day. It was about like history, like regardless how ugly it is and what it is, like we need to talk about it. And we need to like constantly bring it up and 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 go over what we did wrong. Yeah, it's like, it's like with the,
3: the, like, you know, the past few years, there's been a lot of getting rid of. And I'm from the South. I'm from mm-hmm. Georgia. And there's a lot of, like I guess I would call it whitewashing history, mm-hmm. which is taking down a lot of the monuments, you know, forcing which people... Which monuments, to...
1: though? Because I'm, I'm for some of those.
3: No, so like the, like the Civil War monuments yeah, and like up. changing the name of high schools and all that stuff. For
1: what? So here's the thing. When you, when you look at... So I, I'll give you a different perspective. And I understand you're from the South, but when you... General Lee, if we're studying General Lee yeah. as like a general in, in, in and in a war historian, yeah. what he did, like phenomenal, phenomenal general, right? Like leading troops. However, when you look at the history of those monuments, almost every single one of them isn't like a, um, General Lee was this awesome general. They're all like bullshit cheaply made statues that were made during Jim Crow laws to remind black people like, hey, don't forget where you are. So like when I see a dude with a Confederate flag and I'm in Colorado, I'm like, bro, what is that? Like, what, what are you doing, you know? So I'm not saying that, this is a long way of saying like, for instance, the Navajo use the swastika, like the same symbol is, is a Navajo symbol. But if a Navajo kid had that on a t-shirt, you'd be like, whoa, what the fuck is yeah. that, dude? <clears throat> so the Ku Klux Klan took that stars and bars and basically made it their symbol. And it, they evolved it to being where people who are not from the South or people who are not white look at that, and they're like, what is that about? And I understand, and I've met, like, black dudes that are, like, not from the South, man. Like, you know, one of my one of my first roommates in the Army was from Georgia, a black dude from Georgia, and he had stars and bars in his room. You right. know? Like, he wanted to hang it up. And I was like, <laughs> and in my mind, like, I'm a half-breed Indian kid from Montana and lived in Vegas. And, like, the only people I ever saw, like, with that were, like, like, whoa, those dudes are racist, you know, and they were yeah, yeah. hard R. They were, like, very overtly racist, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's why I kind of have this, like, weirdness when it comes to, like, what you're talking about. I agree with you. I do agree with you about erasing history and forgetting about it. I just don't like the glorification of certain things yeah, my, and my the point history is, behind
3: My it. point is is when you remove... Monument statues, whatever the yeah. term is, you you begin to erase parts of history. Correct. And I think that those things are important because um, I think you need to tell those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're not a perfect country. You no. know, it's like no. Black Rifle, we're not a perfect business. Like, right. you know, and I'm sure the way that you do your stuff, you've made mistakes along yeah, the way. Absolutely. And I think it's important that you talk about that stuff. And I think that we do a disservice to other generations oh, coming down the road by getting rid of a lot of these yeah, things, 100%. and I, I'm agreeing with you. You have to talk about yeah. this stuff. Like
1: the, well, thing my, is, my, my thing is just of like, especially in the South, a lot of the monuments in the South, they're not at like a place where a battle was, mm-hmm. where it's representing like both sides of the story in a monument to say like, this was a civil war battle. All these men died though. A lot of the ones in the South are definitely glorifying a figure and they were a reminder, like when they, like you see some of the ones they tore down. They're literally hollow bronze, like
3: cheap. statues. Are a really good word. They, to, to describe, they, not a monument. Yeah, they no. were
1: like, hey, the Jim Crow, like don't forget who you are mm. to black folks, kind of a, a thing. And I don't, and I think when you look at it in that perspective, it changes. Now I'm 100 for you. Like we want to have, like whether there's. You know, all over the South was, you know, uh, where the Civil War was fought. So if we want to have something on a battleground or where they're going to put a building, like, hey, at least put that this was a a site where, like, mm. you know, 5,000 Americans died this date. a historical something. marker, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, you know, to talk about it. Well, but
0: I don't think we—I mean, obviously, we want to stay away from any erasing of history. Oh, absolutely. But at the same time, we need to learn from it. And not that I'm, you know, taking one side or another, yeah. but, you know, back when they were doing the boarding school things, like, they maybe they didn't think of another option. Now, granted, the long-term effects are not yeah. desired— but you look back and you say, like, what were the mistakes?
3: How could we have proved
0: them? So yeah. the next time we have a similar problem, we're yeah. going to advance as yeah, a society.
3: I, I, I agree with you on that. No, I think that the boarding school thing was done with malicious intent, period. Yeah. There's no oh, – yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've read tons and tons of books on Native American history. Because when I grew up, um, like, Cowboys and Indians, man, like, that was the thing, dude. Yeah. Like, Cowboys oh, yeah. and, you know, all that stuff. And, like um, – that was like every Southern boy's dream was like, you know, the Wild West and all this crazy stuff. And it was amazing. And those stories are important, man. Like that time period in our country, it was nuts out there.
1: Well, so like one of my favorite sayings about history and anytime someone wants to talk about history, um, and this basically just right along with our conversation. My favorite saying is, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist or one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And when you look at that, it puts things in perspective and it's hard sometimes to like put the shoe on the other foot and look at like the enemy, if you will. Right. Like whatever. And you can do that through any war. Like you can literally pick one and be like, all right, Mongols versus Chinese or whatever it is. And look and kind of like put yourself in the shoes of someone else. Um, But what I think people forget, especially in our country, because it was so, it wasn't that long ago. you right. When you're talking westward expansion and all these things is um, you know, just the, like I said, one man's freedom fighters and then my terrorists, like war is so horrible. And I, and I think that like the veteran community is kind of the only ones that really, really understand like how horrific war is. And then when you look at these battles that people had, it's like, yeah, I want to scare my enemy. So, you know, in, instead of pointing fingers and being like, well, white people did all this. Well, Indians did all this. It's like, all right, you know, did the cavalry play a game where they would stack babies on a saber? Yes did geronimo stack mexican babies on a pike yes but you have to be willing to address both of those and look at it in my opinion i look at it from a warrior culture not from a not from a perspective of like oh what well, was me every, they were so bad to us type of feelings that that kind of makes sense absolutely so it's like mm-hmm. the warrior side no of one's innocent. like, yeah the warrior side of you is like okay like you know, like, I understand the fear, the intimidation, the psyop tactics to doing some of the things that they did, you know, and, and you can't, um, you can't just put one filter on it, you know, and an example is, especially in the native community, um, you'll see a lot of people, so just past Thanksgiving, right, and you'll see a lot of people talk about The Wampanoag um, and the Pequots were massacred by the by the pilgrims and they make it very, very like white versus red. This was, you know, don't celebrate Thanksgiving type of thing. But when you really look at it, um, that time period, the Mohicans and the Mohawk fought with the pilgrims against the Wampanoag and and the Pequots. So it's not as black and white or white versus red as Mm -hmm. some people would want you to think it is. It's just war is fucking horrible, right? And, like, you got to look at it from a different mindset of I think it's the optic.
0: It's the optic, and and I've seen it, you know, working overseas, and I will Mm -hmm. literally see the news that is put out and having been there, and I'm sure you're in the same position. If they point the camera this way, it tells one narrative. Absolutely. They change that angle and look at it from another side, and it's, a totally different narrative. Absolutely. And then the media just gets to weave in there yeah. and change it to whatever they
3: want. They roll with the hot hand. Like what 100%. sensationalism, like what's going to get the biggest reaction? Yeah. Not what's what what really happened and understanding from a 360 degree view, it's just how do we get people worked up and excited and pissed off and all that stuff? Well, well it's, cl- it's
1: it's an- advertisement now, right? Like I, I forget what year it was, but I remember I was reading some article about the very first time that uh, they started advertising in newspapers. And it was in New York City, this guy basically was like selling penny newspapers, mm-hmm. but he would sell all the ad space in his penny newspapers to all the businesses and As soon as that started, you see the advent of fake news and they have literally have stories in like nineteen early nineteen hundreds of like men on the moon and like clickbait <laughs> like yeah, yeah. buy the paper of course, you know so you can yeah and it's like it's this is this is humans this is hasn't uh, changed yeah and it, that's through time yeah. you know
3: um I have a question so when you 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 were mp first and then you mm-hmm. were a greenbrae yep like when did you start kind of exploring your native american past and history and r- all about that stuff like, okay so, when did you really di- what like when did you really dive yeah. into it i mean
1: my my whole life you know like my my mother um, the warriors had a saying that we would we'd say they say today's a good day to die and my mother would we would say that almost like i love you in our house at times um and it wasn't every time you went off to school or something, but a lot of time my mom would be like, today's a good day to die. I remind you that like, and what it means is I'm right with the creator. I'm right with my family. Like I'm doing everything I can to live as hard as possible. And if I die today, like that's okay, you know, and I'm, I'm accepting it. And the warriors looked at it as like the same way. Like, this is why there was um some, there was ceremony when they could before a battle and all these other things, because they wanted to embrace that spirit of like, Okay, I'm fighting for something. I'm 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 prepared for that. Um, so that was there, and then you know powwows, just everything you think of like my whole entire childhood um, until I went to the army. You know when I went to, when I left for the army, um, I would say you know I, I didn't go to powwows and wasn't as connected. I think the army almost kind of disconnected me in a way because you know my first duty station was uh, Fort Hood, Texas. Um, so, you know, I didn't know anybody there. I just, you know, I go from high school, graduated high school. And literally like two weeks later, I'm basically training and then going to, um, Fort Hood, Texas after that. So, um, I think just being a soldier in a new place, I was just trying to, you know, just be a good soldier and, and focus on those things with always the, the mindset of like, I grew up in this very like warrior culture of household.
3: The, re- the reason I asked <clears throat> that is like, I'm I'm looking at this like through your Native American mm-hmm. history eye set, and then I'm looking at it through your last job as a Green Beret mm-hmm. that that mindset, and like did did those things play together to make you better? Like did the growing up with the warrior mm-hmm. culture and those stories did that help you? Be a better soldier? And then when you were a Green Beret, did that help you understand that culture and the war, you know, the Plains Wars and all that crazy shit? Did that help that? that, Um, Did did that make any sense? Yes, yes. So
1: I am like a student of history, especially like war history, warrior cultures, war. Um, And the coolest thing I think, you know, that I like to remind even my Native friends is that— our army, literally, since the invent of the army, if you go back to King Philip's War, we were just talking about the first recognize of like what is special forces, are the Mohawk and the Mohican warriors that train with the Pilgrims to make them like an SF version. I forget the 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 guy who was like in charge of this little platoon of raiders, basically. This is where like special forces starts in our country. Um, but when you look at just that, it's like
3: like we Rogers named Rangers all, of, and stuff right yeah, yeah. Rogers
1: Rangers and they learn tactics like the French the French Indian War like they learn from from the natives um, wherever you go we in- we inculcated all these tactics. Like even the Texas Rangers, like, yeah, they had pistols and they they got the Navy pistol and figure out how to use it just like the Comanche would use their bow. But like if they didn't ride that well and use those same tactics, they 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 were now able to function against that enemy. So and then you fast forward to today, right? Like the baddest helicopter on the planet's named after some of the best warriors the world's ever seen, the Apaches. So like we we in the military take these tactics and when you open up the ranger handbook like there's tactics in there that have existed since like since people were here you know chasing you know woolly mammoths around spearing them right like there's stuff in there where you're like wow this is where it comes from so I think that the United States is a very unique warrior culture that society is like pushing us away from instead of like embracing this warrior culture of of where our roots where he came from so for me Part of that was like, yes, my mother telling me these stories. Um, being a half-breed, like going to the Indian Reservation was up and down, you know, it just kind of depends. I like could be with somewhere with my mom and it's fine. I'm somewhere my dad, it's not, right? Like for my dad to be a white guy, cowboy, to like marry my mother in Montana and just be openly in love with a native woman, I look at that too as something that people kind of remove from our society. And they always want to look at like, the um, like if you're half black and half white, it's like you're black. Well, well he's white, too, you know, and I, I think sometimes we remove some of these people that have like really put themselves like my father in a position where like my dad was getting in fights all the time, you know, when he was younger, when 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 my mom and dad were married. And um, so I look at that, too, of being like, hey, look at look how awesome our country is. And when you look back even far, like all these mountain men, right, like they all were like they all had. Native wives and they' loving families and and they were such this the true melting pot of what we are as a country and I think the media and people let us like play against each other and try to make it like white versus black or whatever it is, and the reality is like we're way more alike than we are, and we should celebrate the fact that like we're the only country in the world who does this shit oh yeah no, people who've never <laughs> traveled they don't understand that right like You know, like, just because you're Muslim don't mean you marry the same Muslim. Like, I've spent half my adult life, like, watching Sunnis and Shias like, kill each other, right? So, I think that, like, most Americans don't get that part of our culture. Um, So, to go back to your question, my father played, um, I think, my mother probably played the biggest, like, mental mindset for me on how to be mentally strong and, like, Embrace that warrior culture. And my dad gave me more of the tangible skills. My dad boxed in the army. He was a pro boxer. Um, so I grew up like, you know, my dad rolled up like a sleeping bag. We punched a sleeping bag when we were like four or five years old, you know, and just like everything we did was like tough outdoors fighting. We started doing martial arts, like kickboxing and karate when I was like 10. Like everything was this very like, Weakness is not allowed in our house. Like, we were not allowed to show weakness.
3: So, you got the best of both worlds?
1: Yes, I believe so. Did you always know you wanted to go in the military? Oh, yeah. From when I was like three years old, you know, like, I was just playing and, uh, it was funny because, you know, the way my dad would say it, he'd be like, Airborne Ranger. Like, he'd say it like that. and Oh, yeah. But that's I was how, you, that's like, how you say that. I mean, yeah. for the audience. That's the, the correct <laughs> vernacular exactly. pronunciation. Very
3: yeah. much romanticized about yeah. civilians, as is the sniper.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. like,
3: <laughs> civilians are like, oh, my God, there's a sniper. Need. Yeah.
1: Oh, so, I mean, yeah, just playing guns, playing in the backyard, you know, playing with friends. Um, I knew—I feel like everyone has a calling in life, and— I knew at a very very young age that I wanted to be a soldier. I think for me, what I did, um, I always underestimated myself and my abilities. And like, it sounds. What do you funny. mean? Heck, like how so? Physical ability, mental ability, physical intellectual, ab- physical abilities. I mean, yeah, I was 96 world champ, and then I did. We did taekwondo. I was 96 world champ. Like, there's a lot of things that like I was very good at, but I was still like downplay everything it's a confidence so, issue performance Eyes anxiety uh, a conf- no it was confidence it's um confidence. it was confidence so like for me going into the army my first you know seven years of the army um well a little bit less than that about five six years of the army i you know it was just regular mp i was like you know I won, like, Warfighter. I would compete in anything that would happen. Like, when I first got to the unit, uh, my first sergeant was um, a marathon runner. And he we would go on runs. He'd run, like, Alpha Group. And he was like, hey, we're doing Baton Death March next month. You're doing it with me. I'm like, roger that first sergeant. And I would just – I won Baton Death March as a private um, <laughs> in, in 2000. So, like, I just – but I didn't look at those of being, like, I'm this I I can do this. There's I live day of the at the office. I yeah. remember at at battalion in two thousand was the first time I saw uh r- Rangers. Ranger Battalion sent some guys and uh I just saw those dudes I was like, dude, there's no fucking way. Like I you know, I'm looking at like with the beret and their tabs on, and I'm like, damn, that's crazy. And I just underestimated myself. I was just like, Yeah, I'm good. I can run fast, I'm good at PT. Um, and then um I w- when I was a drill sergeant, and this is even after going work, I would did PSD at you know, J Like I did I went through a little selection with them and I go be a drill sergeant. And while I was there, I I think it was more of like I just had the grandeur of like I wanted to do something different. And Sapper School is like literally across the street from us. And uh for those listening,
3: what is Sapper School?
1: Sapper school is um It's basically, it's a patrolling course, a leadership course, just like ranger school. It's shorter, but the, they, they focus on demolitions and sabotage. Most of it's field expedient. So it's all like stuff, you know, how do I make a bomb out of things laying around the office? Right. Um, so that was, that was cyber school and, um, I looked at it and was like, "Wow, I would really like to go to cyber school." And I, 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 honestly said it as an MP, thinking like I would never go. It was just kind of like maybe I'm, I'm hyping myself up. I don't know. Um, and I basically kind of like fell an opportunity to be able to go to cyber school. I went over and, and I used to I used to roll with them all the time, and they they had an awesome little fight house. And uh, one of the guys I rolled with all the time, he's like, "Dude, what are you doing?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" He's just like, "Like you're you're." Better than every instructor. Like, you know what I mean? He looked at me like a peer and I never had anybody in with a tab to, you know, I'm an MP dude. I wasn't around like tabbed out dudes or like badass guys. Right. Um, Even though we had like gunfights in Iraq and like crazy shit, but like I never was around like anything like that. You know, no one ever gave you a little push. Not really. No, yeah. I mean, I was just, I was always kind of like the go to, like if there was a competition or we did something around the company or another unit, it was like Jeremiah will do it. Wilbur yeah. will go do it. Right. Um, What's, the, you know, just. <clears throat> I think it's different when you think about, like, you're the biggest fish in
0: the pond, yeah. but you don't know necessarily how to get to the other pond. Right. You know what I or mean? Or,
1: like, are those sh- nothing but sharks in the other yeah, pond? Yeah, like, you don't know
0: where you're going to look. Yeah. That's why I said, like, yeah. it, it, maybe it's a little yeah. confidence thing until you know. No,
1: it was. Get... So fear, the, fear of the unknown. Yeah, sure. No, 100%. So what happened was I got an opportunity. Basically, the guy was like, hey, you can walk on a cyber school. He's like, you know, we only take 40 people, but most of the people fail. Because, like, it's just like air salt or any other course. So like, you hold up your, your brown underwear and you don't have them. It's like, all right. like you have Mm -hmm. you have time to get it but like if you don't get it like you might fail packing list or you might fail whatever so he's like just show up and i showed up and i got in and i ended up being like uh grad at cyber school as an mp never did demo calcs in my life other than swat stuff on srt so i knew a little bit of breaching but like i'm literally there with you know combat engineers that that that's their job so i was very intimidated and i just studied and tried my fucking hardest every fucking day and i think that was the kick in my ass to be like and it was it was almost kind of a cockiness too where i got done with this and i was like you fucking kidding me like this is it like this is what the army had the test so (laughs) i literally i graduated sapper school um right when I graduated Sapper School, I went to SLC for- um, What is SLC? Senior Leadership Course okay. is what they, they had just changed the name from ANOC to Senior Leader Course. Um, I went there to their MP course, and I won um, the like Ironman, which is like the top PT award, and I was on the mm-hmm. Commandant's list. So I was walking off the stage at graduation, and the MP Commandant was a Ranger, and uh the colonel was a r- or the general was a ranger and then the sergeant major was my op sergeant mm-hmm. when i was at fort hood and i remember him you know and, and he uh he was a ranger because he went through right before they changed like where where co- only combat arms could go to ranger school and they had just brought it back like maybe a year you know when, i think this is like 2008 time frame so they just brought it back so as i get off the stage he shakes my hand and puts a ranger tab in my hand and i'm just thinking like oh cool like drive on tab you know like thank you sir you know like Cool, like I'm never gonna go to Ranger School. And my start major is like January third. And this is like oh. December, like exodus starts. Like it's like December eighteenth or something. It's like January third, what? He's like Ranger School. And I was like, uh Roger, that's time major. <laughs> so I Did go you to, have any idea what Ranger School was? From Sapper School, yes. Okay. Like I, I I learned, you know, from that. And it was funny because they even sent some Sapper instructors down the class before me and they failed and we're right back and so I was like, okay. And anybody who's done the ranger packing list, like over Christmas break, I'm trying to do this. I also don't know how to swim, so they laughed at Sapper School and they said that we That's found so small part. That, that is small so far. It's like, small part. so far. This
3: over got so good. Just <laughs> <now from
1: Keith. laughs> so at Sapper School, there's a giant lake day, and anybody who's done Sapper School knows there's a ton of um, stuff you do in the water. And I failed the lake swim. Um, you know, I didn't make the time. And they were laughing. They were like, we found Superman's kryptonite. <laughs> it was the water. <laughs> like, because I can't fucking swim. <laughs> i do anything else. I got to walk all fucking night, but I couldn't swim. Um, so over Christmas exit, I'm trying to get the, or the, between, you know, that two weeks of Christmas, I'm trying to get my packing list together, Ranger School, and learn how to swim. So I basically, like, took swimming lessons um, and learn how to swim. Uh, so let me let me, real quick, you were, I'm I'm guessing you were a really lean, wiry guy at this point in your life. Yeah, I've always no body fat. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, I was a little. I've always been like pretty athletic. Um, So I go to go to Ranger School, go grace to God, go straight through, no issues, no recycle, nothing. Um, And then that was basically while I was there. um, I was like, I'm not going back to the regular army. My entire squad was made up of like bad boys, and um, it was it was like bad boys. I think we had like two like cadets. So I, I was in this like very like click of dudes, and because I was like physically squared away, and I just went to Sapper School, so like writing warning orders, and doing all these things that we were doing there, like I was like spot on. So the r- kids from Ranger Battalion, they were all like, oh, hell, and I was E seven, you know. So they were all like, oh wow, hell yeah, like I was yeah. older, right? How so, old were you? Um, I was uh. 30 when okay. I went to ranger school or no I was 29 when I went to ranger school right after ranger school I get back and I'm like I'm going to selection Yep. so I went to uh so I went to selection uh, how long then,
3: from the time you graduated ranger school
1: till you went to selection um like three months
3: oh so yeah. sapper ranger selection yep that's a physically school. fit like yeah. peak no injuries
1: no wow no injuries um yeah.
3: No overuse injuries. No, no. Oh, damn, dude, that's Man, that's really impressive. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. So after watching that video, uh, you've fallen over that fence yeah, you are no, built yeah. different yourself up and standing yeah. up. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, I think um, but at the same time, like even though I say I'm built different or whatever, like fast forward, like, you know, through special forces and the same thing on my team, like guys are always like, Damn, this dude's a stud. And I did best ranger, you know, I did I competed in that. Represented third third group, and best ranger. Um, didn't do so well. I mean, that that's that was probably the hardest two days I've ever done in my life. Really, that's a kick in the balls. Let me
3: let me jump back into ranger school. What was so? There's three phases of ranger school. What was something had to be hard for you in ranger school? What was challenging? The cold. The cold. cold?
1: Yeah, I I I now I have, and fast forward to my last job in the army when I was I was a team sergeant in charge of the high north. It's uh, so basically countering all Russian aggression above the Arctic Circle. But but Ranger School was the first time I was exposed and really got a lot of frostbite, a lot of uh, cold weather injuries. And it wasn't that it was super, super cold. Like, it was cold in Dahlonega. But anybody who's been to Ranger School knows, like, you just don't eat and sleep. So, like, malnourished, you're, you're just – you're wet, you're cold. And and my hands and my feet really started to affect me. So, I would, I would definitely say the cold – trashed me, you know, that was the worst experience that I, the worst thing about ranger school. To we, me. When
3: we finally get a really good honest answer from someone when I asked that
0: question, that's true. But, yeah. and also, you know, heat and cold injuries, those can be a lifetime, you know, if yes, you've had a heat absolutely. stroke, you've got a yes. super high likelihood yeah. that can happen again. Yeah. So that,
1: and that's yourself. how it was like, you know, fast forward to doing stuff in the Arctic. I was, um, we did, we do this training with this, with the Swiss where we cut a hole in the ice and you have to ski into the ice get your ruck, your weapon, your skis, everything, get out. And then you're basically there with a partner. Once you get out of the ice, you kind of run up the hill. And then your partner helps you change and and do this, right? One of the things that exercise does is it also kind of shows you how someone's going to react. Physically, I cannot move my hands. I'm the same. So, like, so if I go in the water and I'm that cold, you have to like und- unzip me, help me get going. I can move, I can talk, I'm fine, but like, I I physically cannot move my hands.
0: I'm exactly the same. I and mean, when we go up on the mountain, whatever it might be, yeah, my buddy Anthony Rich would immediately boil water and give me bottles to put yeah. my hands in my pocket so mm. I could warm them up because I couldn't do zippers, carabiners, yep. nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: So. You go through the Q course. Mm-hmm. What was, what was, what's your MOS in the Q course? Um, I was, is that 18, the right question? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was an 18 echo. And that's a uh, communications. communications guy. What was hard in the Q course for you?
1: The hardest thing in the Q course I think was, hmm. My attitude probably. Oh, I had that's a, a first. I, I had, had an a, um, so I went through the Q course. Um, I, I almost didn't graduate. I went through the Bravo course first. So I went through from selection to selection, uh, language, SUT, Sierra School, and then started the Bravo course. From selection all the way through, I peered number one. I was the leadership award. I was the, the Sergeant Major. I was in charge of everyone. And I don't want to say leadership award, there wasn't that yet. But I was uh, peered number one, and I was a Sergeant Major in charge of everyone. Was I E7, a double-tab E7? Yes. But I also looked at that as like, should every other kid that's here be learning from me, like, yes, this is still the army. Like I should be the best I can be. So I really kind of fulfill that like first sergeant, sergeant major role. Um, I butt heads with some cadre doing that sometimes because I wasn't scared to stick up for dudes, you know, like if so-and-so needed a pass cause his mom's sick and like he's scared to turn it in or whatever, like I don't give a fuck, like let's go talk to them, dude. Your mom is sick, you need to go, we need to address this issue. So I got a lot of respect from a lot of the cadre from that and then, again, peering number one, um, I go to the Bravo course. And, and that's
3: weapons sergeant. Weapons Bravo sergeant. As okay.
1: soon as I walked in the course, never forget his name, Out Green. If you're listening to this, you're a piece of shit. You're a puto. I'm going to slap shit out when I see you to this day. To this day. And there it is. I'm, I'm very happy with Haddard Haddard Green. this. Green. <laughs> oh, okay. So I walk in, and he's in charge of the Bravo course. He he kicks me outside. He's like, get outside. By myself. He smokes the dog shit out of me for like three hours. And the whole time berating me, telling me that E seven shouldn't be in the course. Hey, bud, I went through selection as an E seven. Like I'm here. Like I don't know what you think, but, but basically just judging me off of my rank and then saying, you know, why would someone judge hmm? you? I don't. Why Why would I don't that know, happen? I don't know. So I really kind of copped a bad attitude at that point about Was everything. that an ego thing? I don't know. I think. I think. I. I think. I. Developed an ego from it because I was just like I was in my mind. I was humble like I was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you know Because when I would talk to other cadre I'd see them at the gym or something and they'd be like what happened dude? and I'm like tell them. They're like what what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like so Fast forward, um, I ended up getting a staph infection from rolling. I was just training all the time, and I got a staph infection, and I couldn't go to the FTX, the Bravo course. What does FTX mean? The field training exercise. Basically, the culminating event, the last two weeks of the Bravo course, I didn't go. I got rolled back a class.
2: Black Rifle Coffee's ready-to-drink cans give you the perfect balance of convenience and quality. If you want a Spartan-level caffeine kick, try ready-to-drink 300, available in caramel-vanilla, rich mocha and more made with an electrifying blend of mct oil and amino acids ready to drink 300 packs a serious caffeine punch that will supercharge your day ready to drink 300 is perfect for people who need their coffee quick and you can find it at blackriflecoffee.com or a convenience store near you for
3: decades buying a silencer has been difficult But in 2005, Silencer Central set out to simplify the suppressor buying process. So, what happens when you buy from Silencer Central? Well, they help you find the right silencer for you, they handle the paperwork so you don't have to, and they give you a free NFA gun trust so you can share your suppressor. Silencer Central allows you to pay while you wait. They make sure your purchase is carefully prepped, packaged, and protected until the moment you're approved. Once approved, they deliver it straight to your door. So whether you're
2: planning your next hunt or putting together a range day, you'll enjoy every shot you take with Silencer Central straight to your front door.
1: So I go out with the next class and um, they separate us into two teams. I'm the team starting on one team and another guy's a team starting on another team. On my ODA, I had 11 Charlie from Ranger Battalion there and he was like shit hot. 11 charlie so we set up our mortar pit the civilian guy comes out over Tiger green beret he's like the best best mortar pit i've ever seen but it's literally a guy who is like an m-lock instructor in ranger F- he's an e6 staff sergeant it T- should yeah. have been that good should have been that badass yeah. right um so about five minutes later my guys are like hey they're fucking up the mortar pit so we run down there and they're in the other teams in there moving stakes around and jacking it up so I literally was like, if you touch one more fucking stick, I'm gonna beat the fuck out of you. So the team starting jumps and it's in a pit. He jumps in the pit, grabs a stick, looks at me and flings it. So it's like, all right, here we go. So me and him fucking tie up and I choke the fuck out of him. And then the cadgers thought it was funny. They were like, eh, shit happens. Should like happen. talk shit, right? Yeah, dog park course. course. Yeah. So I'm thinking I'm good. We get back that night um, after everything's over and no one's counseled me yet. And it's like nine o'clock at night. So I'm like, yep, here it is. So they pull me in the office and they put in front of me um, a stack of pink cards and a stack of blue cards. So you get peers. So at at that FTX, it was 13 versus 13. I had 13 blue cards that all said, like, I'd go to war with this dude. I would I would love to be on a, serve on a team. Basically the exact same things that said the entire time I was in the Q course. And the other one, I remember one distinctively, because um, that kid, I saw him, ran into him in 10th group. Um, he said, I'd rather eat this piece of paper Then work with him again but he wasn't on my team he was on another ODA and they gave me this big speech about like oh if you can't work with another team and like all that just bunch of bullshit you know like after being on an ODA now I'm like yeah whatever so I got they basically he kicked me out so I'm waiting to go see the group sergeant major you know the swick sergeant major about everything like, two months go by, and this whole time I think I'm getting kicked out, so I'm looking for another job.
3: What do you do during that two-month that two period?
1: Basically just, like, check in every day. So you're, your like, in ID limbo. Cadre. Yeah, okay. in limbo. The good thing, though, was – the good thing for me, though, was um, when I went to go see Sergeant Major, I already had, like, 10 cadre go see him. When I walked into his office, I literally thought he was just going to send me the to, uh, to Robin Sage – She's like, "Hey, man, you can't be fighting people." He's like, "But," and he's basically kind of like, without saying how green was a piece of shit. He was like, eh, "I'm not gonna go against my instructor," but like, here's the deal. Because when I went in there, they had every single blue card. Like, he looked up. They have your whole packet from the whole performance.
3: So, so you're like your 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 Q course uh, passport, so to speak. Basically, yeah, okay,
1: yeah. So he sends me. He's like, "Hey, you got to go to that go course." So it's like, "Okay, not a problem. I Go to that go course." Real um, quick, how
3: long was the the Bravo course?
1: Of uh, I don't know I think there are like ten weeks maybe okay so it's like not that. like
3: six months or anything N- uh,
1: not a, it's close okay. it's like four four months maybe okay so, so it's months. not like
3: a, like massive part of your career it's just it's, it's a uh,
1: no it probably added about seven eight months to okay. my my, my time in the Q course yeah okay um I go to the Echo course it's funny because I ended up being like the I I never I was like the undergrad at the Echo course and stuff but. I never pulled the sergeant major card ever, and I had previous jobs when I was a JSOC where like I had sergeant majors I could go to, and I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go through the crew course, and if I made it, I made it like off of me. Um, so when I say my attitude, I think I really had to like ad- adjust my attitude and not be negative towards anybody else who was around me, and really try to embrace that like leadership role of like, hey, I'm still at E7, I'm a double tab E7 with combat experience. I need to help these other guys through this course. Um, Real quick, what year was this? 2011. Oh, 12. so GWAT is full tilt boogie. Yep. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. Yep. So, you know, th- and that's what I think, you know, for me and everything was fine. I go through the Echo course, I go to Robin Sage, like, you know, same thing, peer peer really high and mm-hmm. back back on track, but I think that was kind of the first time in my military career where I I'm I self-assessed in that like that heavy like I was like, dude, what the fuck did I do? Like I'm that fucked up, and and there, I wasn't perfect. Like the, like especially the other ODA. Like when I was out there at the FTX, like I fucking hated those dudes. Like fuck them. Like I w- I was an asshole, um, and I I could have I could have conducted myself differently. Um, and then fast forward to like my military, you know, my special forces career. I go to third group. Um, I I'm in the, you know multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan or to Afghanistan and Iraq, mm-hmm. I should say, because afghanistan first um my mom was really sick and uh i was like hey, you know what's the chance that maybe i can change groups so i could like i've only got like three years left in the army i'd like to spend some time with my mom you know closer to las vegas if i could go to colorado and i was even willing to take like an rotc gig or something like whatever i i needed to do something with my mother because she was dying um so super easy within like Two emails. The group sergeant majors switched me. They're like, "Boom." Is nice. is that a is that a big deal switching groups? It's not. It's not they, a big deal. Nope. Okay. The sergeant majors make it because I saw that everyone who says it is is full of dog shit. Because I saw mm-hmm. the email traffic from S one. It's literally two. It's literally two sentences on three emails. It's one email to one group sergeant major to the other, and the other guy says, "Yep, I'll do that." And then that email gets sent to. The first Sivka sergeant major, he's like, "I'm good with it, Roger that, guys." And S1 switches pretty quickly, super quick.
3: Because everything I imagine with all the stories I've heard is like the bureaucracy and the red it's, tape and it how is. slow everything it's, goes.
1: It's bureaucracy because people are in charge of you. So your company sergeant major doesn't want to lose you. Your battalion sergeant major, like exactly. it's this layer of shit. But if you could actually just talk to just the group sergeant major, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, yeah, switch." Like, and not to get on special forces, but like we are the worst at talent management on the planet. At what talent management? Okay. Managing your guys and trying to make them happy to you know life. Uh, what is that like? Family, work life work balance. life balance. Yeah. Like they talk a lot of shit about it, and and the officers talk a lot of crap. But but the officers have breaks built in whether they go to ILE or they go to schools for these years or whatever it is. Or the NCOs don't. Like you get on a team and you're running, running, running. You go to SWIC. Like you're on a team for 24 months. You're eligible for the SWIC list. Then you go be an instructor. Now you're instructing at Robin Sage. You work seven days a week, just like you're deployed. You see your wife every now and then, like it's just run, go, 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 go. And then you go back to a group and it's just, the way they manage talent is hard because at the end of the day, when the sergeant majors, whether it's a battalion level or group level, when they have to fill slots, They're looking at names, or excuse me, they're looking at ranks and MOSs on a board that have to go places, and then they need to send, if it's a good gig, like let's say there's a first sergeant job open in Tampa. And third group has to fill it. They're not going to send a bum to Tampa to represent third group. They're going to send a stud. Well, that stud they pick might be like, hey, man, if we go to Tampa, my wife will divorce me. Like, I have to stay here at Bragg because my wife is, you know, she's going through this master's degree program and this and blah, blah, blah. Instead of like just trading and being like, hey, here's another guy. He's awesome, too. Like, send him. They're like, no, nope, you have to go. And it's like, no, wait, it's just ego and laziness. Yeah. So there's that part of, uh, I think that's where to me, where the Sergeant major stories come in, where people have good experiences or bad experiences, you know, with changing groups or, or getting certain jobs they want in the, in the military. Do you enjoy your, enjoy your time as a Green Beret? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. But, but then, you know, when we were talking about confidence, um, I still think I underestimated myself and to a point, you know, where like, um, if the E five me would have saw the E seven me, I'd have been like, no fucking way dude!" like tabbed out like that and combat experience and, and doing the things I did. But at the same time, I almost kind of like, I would have liked to do the long walk and I kind of messed myself up because I was already after 15 years in the army. So long walk is to go to, to go to to Delta. Delta, Yes. Um, I was already past the – you have to have less than 15 years in. Um, so, again, that confidence, I think, kind of – you know, I kind of held myself back. And I'm not saying I would have made it through tax selection or through OTC. Like, who knows? But I'm that kind of guy where, like, I don't like leaving things out there, yeah. the what-ifs, you know? So um, So you don't think you were
3: done serving, which leads us into the next topic, which is why you're here. Yeah. You're still serving. <laughs> And yeah. let's transition into what you got going on now. So I think that's super important. Okay. Um, yeah, that was so, a fantastic segue. That was really <laughs> good. That was good. That was really, good. That that was really, was really good. good.
1: So one of my favorite sayings about leadership is, no one cares what you've done in the past, they only care what you're doing right now. And the military is the perfect example of that because you get to see that firsthand of like, they've been there, done that guys, the way they lead, and how guys follow them versus the guys that are like, you know they're still getting after still crawling in the mud with their boys. They're still doing what their guys are doing and they're not removed from that um, so that being said I Didn't know how to navigate the transition in the veteran space. I started social media as soon as I uh, Retired and it was to raise money for I was actually raising money for the Greenberry Foundation I was like well shit. I need to create some kind of way to try to get this going Um so I started social media and then what I started seeing was a lot of like guys from my community really just It's like bro. You're not a green brain anymore. Like what are you doing? They couldn't let it go they, mm. Everything they did was about like and it was all these like it was like the the what's the The football hey tina time to eat lord uh, napoleon dynamite yeah. uncle rico <laughs> It was like uncle rico Like throw the football over that mountain type of thing and That's kind of how it felt and I was like well, this is weird hmm. Um, so anyway, I really looked at that and was like, well, I want to do something different. I want to Im- help influence people in the veteran community if I can. Um, and just show people that like, I'm, I was 40 when I retired. So it's like, how young is that? You know, you, you look, still got a whole lifetime ahead of you. Yeah. yeah. Well, you look at dudes like nowadays, like, like someone like Cam Haynes, dude's like 55, 56, and he's like shredded and great shape, like just crushing, crushing life. It. Right. So it's like that's possible. You know, when I was in high school, like a 50 year old guy was like dead. He was dying. You know, oh, like, you yeah. <laughs> remember, remember when, was we were like, like, when we were like
3: 18 and like the thought of being like 30, you were just like, Holy shit. Like, yeah. Do you have fun anymore in
0: life? Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Like I just, I, I remember being a private and yeah. seeing dudes in like SF and shit like that. I'm like, that dude is 55. I don't know why he's still oh. in slinging the gun. 100%. And, and all, in reality, he's They're, like 35. 35. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kind of a gray. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Crows feet
0: real um, bad,
1: Anxious. Yeah. So, all that being said, um, I was sup- supposed to go work um, on a uh, on an OGA uh, doing anti-human trafficking in Africa. Um, my last day in the army was January 2020, January 31st, 2020. So we get ready, spun up for this deployment. We're getting everything's getting ready to go. Um, we're getting ready to go to Uganda, and we do one trip and then shut everything down from COVID. So while I did this, it was the most rewarding mission I've ever been on because of when I look back at my time in the military, it was like I have, and especially now that like Afghanistan's unfolded and all these things we have to unpack, right? I just look back at my time and I'm like, it was for my boys on my right and my left and nothing else. Whether they were Afghans, or they were Iraqis, they were still my boys on my right and my left. And that's what it was for. So I can't because again, one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorists. And I think that like some veterans battle that especially seeing like Afghanistan, like fall apart that way. Like, what did we do? It was for nothing. And it's like, so that being said, it was one of the first time everyone on on, like conducted something and was done with it was like, dude, that was Bad at like we help people like we like there's no taking it away that we help these women. Well you're truly affecting change, truly, you're truly creating immediately. Change. Like a gunfight's a gunfight, and Correct. then
0: after in politics, there's like yep. so many facets of yep. what that becomes and what you actually accomplish. Absolutely, yep. but that's like
1: immediate gratification. Absolutely. Yeah. So we get back, and uh, you know this is Uganda, right? Uganda. Okay. So everything happens, and then um, I'm like, how do I do this for Americans? And I started kind of like. Looking at, um, looking at you know sec- human trafficking and, and what's going on in our country, trying to dive down it, um, and then really reconnecting to um, the native community. My mother, when I was growing up, she worked a lot on Indian reservations, and it could, it was everything from just like helping a woman, you know, get more food or taking babysitting for them or removing them from abusive relationship. That was my mom. Did that a lot. Um, and I was like, how can I, you know, my mother, had passed away like two years before that. And I was like, I want to do something that is brings honor upon my family as well as work in the community and continue to do, to live like that deal. Presley bear. Like, what is it being a green beret? Like, just cause I don't serve in the in the army anymore. doesn't mean that like, yeah, I can't carry that forward. Not, th- you know,
3: th- th- that's like me. It's like, I was never in the military, so I never served, but that doesn't mean I can't serve now. Yeah, 100%. I'm probably more capable now of helping than I would have been at 18, 20, yeah. whatever. You when know.
0: You're you perfectly prepared. I mean, Absolutely. through your military career in conjunction with your heritage. And then that last trip right before you left, let the fire to make you perfectly yeah. designed to do what you're yeah. doing now.
1: So, so I looked at, started really diving down the uh, MMIW issue, which stands for missing murdered indigenous women. And like a fact, um, uh it's over five thousand. I want to say it's like five hundred and ninety ninety-six, or excuse me, five thousand nine hundred and ninety-six, something like that. I can't remember the That's exact the number. number. I read up. It. But it's uh but in two thousand sixteen they did a study, and out of over five thousand missing Native women across our country, only a hundred and sixteen were put into the DOJ and actually investigated. So it was one of those things. And as I started um, thinking, like, what could I do to try to create some change? So basically what War Party Movement is, it's a t-shirt company, a drop shipping t-shirt company. Um, my margins aren't great. I don't have a ton of money. But what I'm able to do with a couple hundred bucks here and there has been so cool to see, especially the veteran community help me. So I start this t-shirt company and my intent was to be able to try to just send some funds to like if someone's doing needs a cadaver dog like I can pay 300 bucks to get that cadaver dog to go out and help that family or whatever it is um and my messaging behind it was more of like when you look at um the colors of the medicine wheel are on the logo and those represent uh they represent a few things but my mother was always the biggest thing she said would always push on us as kids was that it represents all the colors of the people of the world. And the prophecy of the seventh generation is about where you, there is no race. We're all the same. There's no red, there's no white, there's no black. We're all the same people. So I really wanted my messaging to be that way. And I would see people in the communities and like, People don't know who their neighbors are anymore. People don't shake hands. People aren't nice to each other. Very disconnected. Very disconnected. And, and we think we have these connections over the phone, over our phones, like on social media or something, but it's not a true connection interaction. Yeah. And everyone just complains. And I was like, fuck that. Like, I'm not a complainer. I want to fix something. So I think when I looked at it, I looked at like this big scale, like I can create some change. Um, I'm glad I had that mindset and attacked it the way I did. So over, you know, about a year and a half, um, I basically just like selling t-shirts, trying to do messaging. Um, I've, my first rescue is actually, I, um, and I use the word rescue because the woman does, uh, and I don't want to take anything away from her. But one of the things we facilitated is like someone reaches out and says, Hey, I'm in an abusive relationship. I need help. Okay. Um, how can we help you? And what I did basically was I drove to LA. Uh, she had, um, organized crime ties and abusive relationship. And I basically just pulled security while we loaded up her truck. I'm um, loaded up my truck and I moved her across the country to to a uh, and she lives in North Carolina now. Um so that's kind of the first thing we did. And then I've done that multiple times and, and it's basically just like a lot of it's volunteers, guys on social media or or other a lot of them are former special operations guys being like, hey if you need ever need help, I need I live here. So Yeah sign me up. Yeah. So it's like, hey, if I'm in Salt Lake City and some lady's like, can you have anybody or can you help me? Or maybe there's a missing a search going. I'm like, hey, you want to go do a search tomorrow? Family's gonna go search this area for where they think their their daughter might be. Yep, we'll do. So a lot of these skills that you learn in the military, you know, like area recon, zone recon, like basically open up the ranger handbook and like everything on there off reconnaissance is how you conduct searches. Um, why are you now there's some nuances to that as you develop some law enforcement skills to that, but a lot of these. A lot of the people on on Indian reservations are just kind of these grassroots. They're just organizations, like just trying to get it done. So that's kind of where we are. Um, Let me ask you a question. So, where are, like,
3: what would you say happens to the majority of these missing girls?
1: Okay, so that's. Don't mind me asking. So that's a very hard question. So, when you look at, um, in particular, native, or excuse me, um, Indian reservations in. Uh, the West, right? A lot of them are in the middle of nowhere. There's like Amazon isn't putting a, uh, a warehouse outside of the Shoshone Res in Wyoming, right? Like there's nothing for them to do. There's they can't own land. They don't own their own home, so they can't have like equity and like get the bank. And there's all these problems that have that bureaucracy and levels of bureaucracy have created for natives on the reservations, and. But I look if you draw back and don't look just specifically at natives, right? Anywhere there's poverty, there's human trafficking. So this is just another area where there's a lot of rules and bureaucracy that would allow bad actors to even access women on a reservation easier. Um, it wasn't until 2020, the Biden administration just passed, where like you could be prosecuted, a non-native can be prosecuted on federal land. Before like you. It didn't. You could go to the reservation, and you can't be prosecuted for those crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of layers of bureaucracy in those. The other thing, when you add, you know, the nuances of each reservation is a little different. Most of them, the way I try to describe it to people is small town rural America, where you have like three deputies, and they're in charge of like a hundred mile radius. So you could get a call. You know where you have to drive 50, 60 miles. You know, and you you don't, you don't have radio service in half that place. You don't know, have cell service. You're just going out somewhere, and there's three deputies on the force, and they they got three cars they hot seat and mess around with, and it, they're just so underfunded. Um, so it's a very small town like vibe, like that, that goes when it comes to p- policing and patrolling. The other thing is, is there a lot of them know each other. They're all families. So another example is like, let's say I beat my wife. I'm a deputy. Your wife calls 911 cause you're beating her up. I respond like your wife's going to be like, Oh, okay. Home yeah, cooking. Like, yeah. 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 So, so then it goes. So there's, and I'm not saying that's every instance. I don't want to, you know, downplay some of the good officers that work for the tribal police and, and what they're trying to do. The fact is, they're just overwhelmed. Um, another one, another statistic is: there's 500. I want to say it's 516 recognized tribes in the United States. Only uh, only 111 use and implemented the Amber Alert and Silver Alert system.
3: Hmm. Oh wow, that's bizarre. The
1: other side of it is, if you're not um, <clears throat> physically enrolled on that tribe in that tribe living on the reservation, you won't get those Amber alerts. So the Navajo reservation let's say you're driving from Flagstaff to Albuquerque basically the length of the Navajo reservation and an Amber Alert goes off. You could be Navajo but maybe you work construction down in in Phoenix. But because you're not physically living on there you're not enrolled in their system you never get the Amber Alert. So we could be driving, you know, down there and there could be missing vehicles, people, you know, girls or 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 kids or whatever going past us and you never get the Amber Alert because it only goes to them. So that's a money thing. That's a there's there's some bureaucracy in there, but it's also you know funds and alloc- allocation. Aren't, aren't funds. the
3: tribes, generally speaking, like really like closed off to outsiders?
1: Um, or is that like a Hollywood thing? No, I think I think it just depends on on where and what you know what tribes and where you are. Um, as a non-native, I mean, like as a white dude rolling in. To well, help. some of, some of them have. Um, Some of them have, you know, like tourist attractions or whether it's casinos or tourist sites or things you want to see. But in general, you have to you can't discredit uh, back to like the boarding school systems, like the lack of trust of government the the, they don't trust authority because, you know, if they if their tribal police are corrupt then they don't trust authority. The BIA doesn't help them. The FBI doesn't come in and conduct investigations. They're like, okay. And then a lot. oftentimes, you know, if, um, there are a lot of bad actors. I I, I want to say the percentage, the last statistic I read was 60% of all women that go missing or murdered on their Indian reservations, it's conducted by a non-native. So you have to look at that too, right? Like if, if that number is that high, six in 10 assaulters are non-native, you know. Um, but they also look at it as like you know, you can't take away like the basically washing of culture. So I think there's a lot of um, trying to protect that, you know, yeah. from out from distrust. outsiders, from yeah. distrust from outsiders. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so one of the one of my some of my favorite humans, uh, Kat and Naomi, went up to a war party event yes. in Colorado. Yep. What does that do? Do you are you able to bring in
1: funds and then push it through? Yeah. So How so really cool. I'll kind of wrap up like some of the stuff we did with war party movement. I, I'm glad I didn't start a nonprofit right away. Mm-hmm. So with the money that from sales, we've done everything from pay for uh, uh, some Native women to receive counseling that were in abusive relationships, pay for their counseling, to move women out of places to uh, physically hide them like where the FBI didn't put them on like a wit sec, where we've literally moved bounced them around from safe house to safe house. Um, so we've done a lot of things with the money. The one thing that I saw though, the biggest problem I saw was we, would move, we moved a woman uh, from North Dakota to a safe house and we get her there and it's a nonprofit, you know, some find this nonprofit to take her to. It's only a 30 day program. But this story has happened like five times to me personally with women 30 day program, they go there and at the end of the 30 days they have to leave. Like there's nothing for them, they just back flapping in the wind. So I was, like, thinking about what I do, what I like to do. Um, You know, since I got out of the Army, I really got back into, like, cowboying and horses and just that. And I was, like, I saw these other veteran programs that were going on with horsemanship and stuff, and I was, like, well, this is really cool. Like, I think this is something we could do. And how could we really impact women? So out of that, War Party Ranch was born, and that is the the nonprofit arm of War Party. So what that is, it's a – it's a cowgirl course. We bring in female survivors of abuse, turn them into cowgirls, and help them get jobs in the industry in the agriculture industry. They said it was awesome.
0: It was just yeah. a super cool event, and everybody around was like super supportive. Yeah, it and
1: so we, they were. Oh, we did the ranch rodeo. Is what they came up for. Yeah. So the so um, the really cool part about the ranch rodeo was just the support from the community. Um, where we are in in uh, kind of eastern. Eastern Colorado, uh, outside of Kiowa. we really wanted the community. One, when it comes to running a Western, like a cowboy course, we want real cowboys to know that we're real cowboys and we're not like cowboying for Instagram or it's fake. Like, no, we get after it. So by, we had our instructors, all female team, all female instructors compete against all the men in the, and, uh, we had 26 teams enter, um, It ended up getting really big last minute. So out of the 2016s, we had four professional teams that compete on a professional level. And then we also had the Silver Spur. They sent four teams. They don't send hands to nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what made it a great event because we had these real cowboys at our event. And what we really wanted was we want the backing of the community. So when we're bouncing around ranches or like if we have students at the restaurant or something and some young guy's trying to hit on them or something, it's like you see that and you're like, not, not those girls, buddy. Yeah. Like, and if we have the community can have our back and really help look out for us. And especially trying to, um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, right? Like this isn't like, uh, uh, you pet horses and, and like, this is real cowboy shit. So some of the selection process on the women we bring in, we do have to do a, a very, uh, uh, vet them very well. Be like, you know what you're getting into, you know what you want to do. This isn't easy. Um, in the same right um, that world also um, is very abrasive you know um, you so we were trying to take women that experienced trauma in their life but also give them, empower them with the skill set that like 99% of the men in the country can't do, but also have like just difficult things in their back pocket. So if you fast forward five years from now and life gets a little tough or something happens to them, they kind of laugh and they're kind of like, well, it ain't snowing, right? It's like talking to like a dude who went through ranger school or a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or something. They're just kind of like, eh, I mean, it kind of sucks, bad, but right? it ain't that bad, right? Yeah. So like to give those kind of experiences to them, but to also have... Uh, we don't pull punches like they're going to be around men, you know, they're going to be around abrasive people and humans and that's just kind of how people are. Right. Um, but we know that if we have the community have our back, so that's why we put on that ranch rodeo. Um, we are going to make that an annual event, that ranch rodeo. Um, so we're able to do with the funds for the ranch rodeo because we, we just stood up the nonprofit in July. Um, and what I wanted to do, I'm really big about like showing people where their money goes. You know, I, I don't want to be like uh, ever accused of doing anything negative with people's money. So what we did was there's a native girl that I've been working with with War Party Movement for about a year, um, and she was in an abusive relationship, and uh, she shoots a trad bow, and that was one way that she would like she wanted to reconnect with nature and just like get back in the mountains and do her thing. She her dream was to go hunting. So we did. We wanted to tie in because in our course we teach. Um, we also teach like horse packing for outfitting because that's mm-hmm. a, a job we might be able to get some of the girls into. So the idea was to showcase the other side of what hunting brings. So we can kind of merge the two together. And we had the money because of Colorado over-the-counter archery unlimited. Like it's not. It didn't cost us a ton of money. You know, we we only raised a couple thousand dollars, but you know, it cost us. You know half of that to take this woman hunting so we linked her up with psc archery um and then did went, we got her some mentorship um dana was one of like a key instrument in that um helping us and then we kind of culminated with um her and dana hunting together yeah super cool um and uh you know very healing journey i i feel blessed to be a part of that you know like my cup was so full after that and seeing and even though we didn't harvest an animal great hunt we're on elk every day um this woman was just super tough and just like never not smiling and regardless of how shitty it was and uh basically was more of a um like reassurance that like we're doing the right thing and like I'm on the right track. Like we are on the right track as an organization to do what we want. And it's the model that we use for veterans for the last 20 years now Mm -hmm. is
0: like take them on these hunts, you know, whether they're missing limbs or whatever, to empower them, get them outside, let them appreciate the country they fought for. Absolutely. You're just doing it for a different audience. Absolutely. No, 100%. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And especially when it's archery based, there's a process. A rifle, especially someone in the military, it's like, oh, here's a rifle. You know how to use this. Let's go shoot this animal. Shoot a deer, shoot an elk. Yeah. yeah, it's a band aid on a bullet. Well, but pros- when it comes yeah. to it
1: with the archery, there's a, there's a hero's journey there.
3: Oh, like, for sure. you don't just pick up a bow and be like, hey, I'm going to go run out in the woods Correct. and shoot something. Correct. So yeah. There's, so there's she a-
1: started this in, I want to say, in like July. Yeah. We got her the bow. So she had a couple months before September. Killing the animals is the least important part of the journey. Absolutely. Yeah. So, we, um, so we were able to facilitate that. And um, the, the thing I wanted to do when I started the organization and the team that I of friends, I asked what they'd be a part of it. And my co-founder, she's like my long lost little sister, Micah. They all have their own story, you know, like they've all been in some kind of situation in their life where they were you know, trauma abuse. Um, and I look at like how do you break the cycle of abuse? I was like, well. What if we started a different, a new cycle? Like, cause you're not just going to break it. Like, let's start something different. So every woman has her own story. And I look at this of like starting a new chapter of breaking the cycle of abuse. But like, how do I, how do I help people now? So now this girl that we took hunting now is part of our team, like, She's an advocate for us on the Navajo reservation. Um, she will help us find students this summer. We want to pull a couple of students from the Navajo reservation. Um, so you know, like so now, when I say like break adding a new site, now she's giving back to her own community. She's back being involved in her community and teaching and teaching well, she's archery and yeah, she's she wants to, a to teach hunting to women
0: point, exactly. Right? So you take the subject matter expert. It's uh, like the Sear model. Like
1: yep. learn it. Do it. Teach it. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, It's
3: also like if I can do it, you can do it.
1: Yeah. And if oh, I've yeah, done it once, empowering. I can do it twice. Yeah. Yep. So now we're in the spot where, as an organization, our like long term goal, you know, where money's not an issue, is um, we're going to run our course from June to um, the beginning of September. So June, July, August. We're we'll running ten weeks. Our goal is to do four women. Um, to start off with four women, and to get them a like. No bullshit. the The vision is you're from Mississippi. You're you. We do the interviews. You you know. We bring you out. You show up in vans and a pair of jeans, and we give you everything you need. Turn you into cowgirl, and now you're working on a ranch in Wyoming in September. And you're not. You have physical. You know. Physically, you've went through all these these difficult times you've learned the skill set the horses are so healing nature is super healing and then now you have the financial stability to not worry about anything that had tied you to that relationship or what you went through in Mississippi now you can heal and if you know and continue on your on your journey a journey of that so that's our our um, our vision and our goal basically what we're doing now is we're kind of in the fundraising stage um, and to stay back to like the cowboy community, where, where they're heavily involved, all of our instructors um, compete in the off season at big events. So I have two instructors, um, one's their sisters, uh, Olivia and Gracie Lay. They're twenty and uh, 21 and 19, and they're gonna be down at Wickenburg roping, competing. That's street cred. Uh, You're maintaining oh, street cred. We have yeah, a, awesome. a super salty, stellar crew of girls competing at the art of the cowgirl ranch rodeo. Uh, Um, Micah my business partner, um, she's heavily into the rodeo world. And, um, but that's just, like you said, it's just some street cred, just kind of keeps us current, but also in our opinion, it's, it's ways to network and get other people to, to showcase what we're doing. So fast forward, um, we have, our students are coming back to compete with some of these girls and these competitions or, or learning a new skill because the cowboy world is my favorite thing about it from retiring is like it never ends like you meet a dude who's 70 and he's still learning and doing and it. it's just it's it's such a cool pursuit of life and there's just layers and layers it's like jiu it's just layers on layers on layers and layers of just there's so many levels of the shit. so that's where we want to be is basically that sf model like working ourselves out of a job where we um, we start to replace some of our instructors in the future with students that came through our course. Yeah, be, trainer. Yep. Awesome. So back to that, like starting a new cycle versus, yep. you know, completely just saying, break a break the cycle of abuse.
0: Very cool. So as we wrap up, I got to ask what's the significance of the flag.
1: Okay, So, um, yeah, I'll try to keep it quick. So my, this flag was so one of my really good buddies, uh, Mike Riley, he was killed, um, in, in 2019. This was on his kit. And, um, last, uh, this is last winter, a guy hit me up. He was a crew chief, a medevac crew chief. And he's like, he just saw me like posting about Mike and every, every now and then I was talking about him. He's like, Hey, so it's just your buddy. It's like, yeah. He's like, jump on a call at me. So he tells me that he was the guy who medevaced Mike out of Afghanistan when he died. Um, and the guys came and they took all his equipment and did everything. And they basically just threw everything out, just left it in the helicopter. Like, we don't want any of that shit. So instead of throwing everything away, he, w- he goes through all the guy's stuff to make sure there's, you know, there's something from the family or, you know, he's found like feathers or just things, you know, guys carry. Um, and this was on his kidneys. Like I didn't want to throw it away. So he put it in his footlocker. and he reached out to me. He has actually in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So I go up and have a beer with this guy and he gives me this flag. So what I've done since I've had this flag is I take it on all my adventures, skiing, climbing, ski racing. Um, ah, shit, um, ah it's on the back of my saddle and it's just kind of a a physical reminder of like when i see this i don't just see um one person my mom my dad all my buddies um and it's like they're living through me so now like that good today's a good day to die it's like i chase life as hard as i fucking can and like, I don't want to die old. I want to die in, like, an avalanche when I'm, like, 65. Like, right? I get bucked off a horse and get, like, I I don't know how I'm going to die, but it's going to be glorious. That's how I feel. And uh, he died doing what he loved doing. He was a fucking warrior. So it's just a tangible thing to be like, dude, I just keep living. So I just thought it was really cool. Um, this is a cool experience for me being, like, a Black rifle Coffee podcast, you know, I'm like, yeah,
3: yeah,
1: you know, so I just wanted to, you know, this is just like a physical reminder that, you know, um, Everyone that's been in my past has been something, meant something to me is here with me all the time, you know.
3: That's awesome. It yeah. is awesome. I'm gonna call you when you're sixty 64. Cause remember I was like I said like when we were eighteen thought of yeah. being thirty. Let's go skiing. <laughs> and you're <were> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, bro, When I'm seventy-five, man. I'm going out a blaze of fucking glory. Oh, oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. I'm still fit. I can't thank yeah. you
1: enough for coming out, no, sharing your you story. Guys.
0: Fucking awesome tale. Where do people find you to
1: support it? Um, so war org is um website, War Party Movement. Um and then my personal, personal. So both those Instagrams are just War Party Ranch, War Party Movement, and my personal Instagram is Jeremiah underscore Blackbeard. Um, reach out to me. Reach out to you know anybody. You can hit me up anytime. Buy a shirt. Support them. Yeah. So That's the right. shirts go. We're transitioning away from putting the money to some of the things I said before to where War Party Movement will be um, just a support arm for War Party Ranch as we start getting heavier and heavier and just more students and, 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 and what's the significance weather?
3: of the red face, the red handprint over the face.
1: So the red handprint, um, it basically just represents that the, um, the murdered and missing indigenous women. Um, and it's like they're being silenced. Uh, so that's kind of the significance of that. And now it's basically just like the universal symbol of MMIW. Um, most Americans don't know how crazy that is and the, this epidemic of what's going on in the native community. Um, so it's one of those things where it's just like, even just awareness for it, mm-hmm. you know, and back to, you know, the original Americans, the original warriors of this continent and, and these people that really helped shape our country into what it is good, bad, and different like, they need to continue to thrive and live. And it's basically just protecting, trying to protect them and, and look out for that. So, but that's just more of like the uh, awareness symbol. Yeah. The red handprint. You're, You're awesome, like, uh, man. No, that thank you That would make guys. one
3: hell of a coffee bag.
1: It would. It uh,
3: would. About that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, no, I mean like that would be super badass. Yeah.
0: Wouldn't be the first time. Yeah. All things are awesome. possible. But no, thank you guys. I feel yeah, super man.
1: blessed being here. And no, it's fantastic, man. Awesome. Thanks
0: for coming out. Really appreciate you.
1: Heck yeah. We'll thank see you, you in soon. the
0: future. Follow-up yeah. story.
2: That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!